0: Thank you.
1: The Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Good afternoon. Uh, This is a nomination hearing for the Honorable Joseph McManus of New York, a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, class of Minister Council to be U.S. Ambassador to Columbia. Ms. Mary Royce of California to be an Assistant Secretary of State for Educational and Cultural Affairs. Ms. Robin Bernstein of Florida to be U.S. Ambassador to the Dominican Republic and the Honorable Edward Charles Prado of Texas to be the U.S. Ambassador to Argentina. Before the ranking member and I make our remarks, we want to recognize our colleagues that are here and have other business as well to attend to, but wanted to be here today. And so I would first recognize Senator John Cornyn of Texas, who's here to introduce Judge Edward Prado.
2: Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. It's an honor to be back before you, and particularly to introduce my friend, Judge Ed Prado, who's been nominated by the president to be the US ambassador to the Argentine Republic. Judge Prado and I go back a long way. Um, When both of us served as judges in San Antonio, Texas, he was a little bit ahead of me as a state district court judge, but he went on to serve with distinction in the federal judiciary now for almost 35 years. He's had an incredible career. The first 19 years he served as a federal district judge, and then on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals for 14 more but he's been a public defender, a U.S. attorney, a state district court judge, assistant district attorney. He's done a lot of different things. But for some in the audience who may not know, the states of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas, uh, for those states and the people who live there, Judge Prado and his colleagues on the Fifth Circuit have essentially been the Supreme Court, since as you know, only uh, roughly 80 or so cases make their way to the United States Supreme Court. In his role for the Fifth Circuit, uh, the judge was confirmed by the Senate unanimously, 97 to zero. It's no surprise then he was appointed by the Chief Justice to the US Supreme, Supreme Court to chair the Criminal Justice Active Review Committee and serve on the board of the Federal Judicial Center as well as other committees. Judge Prado is just a popular, sharp, and actually, once you get to know him, pretty funny guy. But I hope he doesn't show that part of his personality here today. (laughs) <laughs> he was first in his family to go to college. Judge Prado received his undergraduate and law degrees from the University of Texas and grew up in a predominantly Latino neighborhood in West San Antonio, and he speaks fluent Spanish, which will come in handy, of course, in Argentina. Uh, I was surprised to learn that his uh, family's history extends back to a Spanish soldier married at the Alamo in the 1700s. So... Um, one of, the, uh, one of the jokes about federal judges is that although they get lifetime tenure, sometimes it feels like a life sentence. And uh, Ed and Maria are embarking on a new chapter in their lives, which I know must be exhilarating for them, and it's to our great benefit uh, to have somebody of their distinction and their character uh, representing uh, the U.S. government in Argentina. Um, although down in Argentina he's going to have to remember that. Uh, Cowboys are, are gauchos, uh, but, art, but uh, Argentinians uh, may be strangers to bevo, but they're no stranger uh, to beef. So um, as the committee knows, Argentina has become an increasingly important country in, in um, South America. President McCree recently implemented a series of positive economic reforms that has literally turned that country around and uh, eliminated some of the currency controls and reducing taxes on agricultural exports. And his broad election victory last fall indicates he'll continue to enjoy broad support. So just as our relationship with Argentina has, has improved, it's really important that we have somebody of the character and talents and experience of Judge Prado representing the United States government in that country. As we work together to combat narcotics trafficking, money laundering, terrorist financing, corruption, and other illicit financial activities. We all share the concern, which I know the chairman particularly feels poignantly, the political concern over Venezuela, and recently our two presidents agreed to launch a bilateral working group on cybersecurity issues. So the Argentine Republic is fortunate to have such a strong believer in democratic principles and the rule of law serve as a U.S. ambassador. I thank you for your Courtesies and letting me make this introduction and thank the president for making such an outstanding Nomination and I hope the committee will favorably report out his nomination
1: Thank you senator Cornyn Uh, the senior senator from Florida Bill Nelson to
0: introduce Ms. Robin Bernstein And I might uh, say also about mrs. Royce Uh, We well know her husband Ed Uh, They have been frequent visitors to our state of Florida and I uh, have always been such uh, gracious, gracious folks uh, to Grace and to me. And uh, I want to particularly thank the two of you for your leadership. You're both very skilled, the chairman and the ranking member in uh, foreign affairs. I had the privilege of serving on this committee uh, for a number of years. And I thought it important that since I have known Robin for a long time, the nominee for uh, the DR, I wanted to come and tell you about her, that her interest in public service started at a very early age. Uh, She even campaigned for Scoop Jackson and Hubert Humphrey. Now, please, Mr. Chairman, don't hold that against her. That's not in this file. I didn't see that. (laughs) She even campaigned for me. (laughs) Mr. Chairman, please don't hold that against her. Uh, And she worked for the Joint Economic Committee and the Department of Commerce. And she's always had that spirit of public service. And let me tell you what she did in the aftermath of Puerto Rico. In a bipartisan way, she put together the Palm Beach County Cares Organization that within just a few weeks of the hurricane in Puerto Rico, they delivered over 100 tons of supplies, and they also helped to get clean water. Uh, And you know how desperate those folks are. Uh, as they continue, many of them still without electricity this late in the day, uh, and potable water. That spirit of service and that proven ability to work in a bipartisan manner is going to make her a great ambassador. And so uh, I've already congratulated her on the nomination, and I'd like to see... Her confirmation fly through the Senate. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
1: Thank you, Senator Nelson. And I think I speak for the ranking member. We thank you for your compliments. You are free to come to all of our hearings and say that as well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I so. just did that in a press conference yes, sir. with you, yeah. Mr. Chairman.
1: <laughs> but thank you for coming today. A member of our committee, Senator Udall of New Mexico, will be introducing
3: Ms. Royce. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. And I, I also Just want to say what a pleasure it is working with you, Chairman Rubio, and ranking member Senator uh, Ben Cardin. Uh, My wife, Jill, and I have known uh, Marie Royce for close to 20 years when I uh, began my service in the House of Representatives. Marie is a California native. Growing up in the West, she's active in conservation organizations and initiatives, and I believe she understands the important Connection of those programs to international security and the rule of law. I also think her experience in educational and cultural affairs makes her a good fit for this important leadership role. Ms. Royce, a businesswoman and former professor, has been the CEO and principal of Marie Royce LLC in Fullerton, California since 2016. She has more than 30 years of experience in the private sector with Fortune 500 companies, and as a small business owner, creating and launching startups and new initiatives and serving as a key business liaison to 80 countries. As a former educator and full-time university professor, Ms. Royce led an international grant program between two universities. She is a private sector appointee on the Advisory Committee on International Communications and Information Policy at the Department of State and has served on two U.S. cultural exchange boards. Marie served as an American Council of Young Political Leaders Delegate to Hungary and Poland. Ms. Royce earned a Bachelor's in Science in Business Administration from California State Polytechnic University and a Master's in Business Administration from Georgetown University. Her nomination has significant support within the diplomatic community Patricia de Stacey Harrison served as Assistant Assistant Secretary for Educational and Cultural Affairs under President George H.W. Bush and Secretary of State Colin Powell, and currently serves as CEO and President of Public Broadcasting. Ms. Harrison says, and I quote here, Marie Royce's experience, leadership, knowledge, and commitment to service will be of high benefit to our country and the Department of State and the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs," end quote. Likewise, former Assistant Secretary for Education and Cultural Affairs under President Clinton, Ann Stock, says, and I quote here, We are thrilled to see Marie Royce nominated for a key leadership role at State. She continues to share our vision for a more secure and prosperous world through the power of international exchange. End quote. Ms. Royce's experience, judgment, and temperament qualifies her for this important position within our diplomatic corps, and I wholeheartedly support her nomination and urge uh, my colleagues to do so also. Thank you both, and really great to be here
1: with you. Thank you. The uh, three ambassadorial nominees, have confirmed, will, fa- will be the face of America to the countries in which you will be serving. And your primary job of course is to communicate and execute the policies of the United States explaining to local populations what we are doing and why. The Western Hemisphere is a region vital to our national security and to our economy and one increasingly contested by foreign powers who have little to no interest in democracy or human rights or the rule of law. If we want the United States to remain free, prosperous and secure, it starts in the Western Hemisphere. This is a contest that we cannot afford to lose and you will be on the front lines. As for the nominee to the Assistant Secretary of State for Educational and Cultural Affairs, if confirmed, you will be charged with one of America's most important foreign policy tools, the finest educational system in the world, and a culture that is prevalent in nearly every corner of the planet. All four of these positions play an important role in U.S. foreign policy, and I am pleased that all four of these nominations are here with us today. Let's begin with Colombia, where we have a relationship that, in my view, is a poster child for what good U.S. foreign assistance can do. We have worked for decades now with the Colombian government on a problem of mutual concern, the production and trafficking of drugs. The U.S.-Colombia initiative, Plan Colombia, is one of the most effective bilateral efforts that we have ever undertaken and is a model in this western hemisphere. The initiative's main goal was to reduce the supply of illegal drugs produced and exported by Colombia. But in addition, it helped the security of Colombia itself, the stability of its government and its governance. And as a result, economic relations with Colombia have deepened throughout the years, and the U.S. remains Colombia's top trading partner. In in short, this partnership has allowed the Colombian government to intake billions of dollars in foreign assistance, and in return, has allowed them to invest it in ways which have been good for both countries. Today, Colombia is a free and democratic nation The rule of law is legitimate, it has one of the strongest and largest economies in the region, and it is among our strongest allies in the hemisphere, no longer just a recipient of support but providing it themselves in places like Honduras. Still it faces challenges and given the internal and regional issues its government is facing, especially with narco trafficking and the FARC, anyone under consideration for this position should demonstrate a deep understanding of the political, security and economic climate as well as the opportunities for the United States in partnership with Colombia and with the region at large. The Assistant Secretary of State for Educational and Cultural Affairs oversees some of the U.S. government's most popular and prominent programs, like Fulbright Scholars, named after the longest-serving chairman of this committee, William Fulbright, and exchange programs that expose people from all over the globe to America. These are soft power tools that could very well help decide whether this century is also an American one. The Dominican Republic and the United States has deep cultural ties, especially in my home state of Florida. According to Pew, Dominicans are the fifth largest Hispanic group in the United States with nearly two million in the year 2015. It also happens to be a popular tourist destination for Americans, hosting upwards of two million Americans as tourists last year. Beyond personal and economic ties, the Dominican Republic finds itself at an important flashpoint for freedom in the region. The Dominican Republic is part of Petrocaribe, a group of countries that receive subsidized oil from a dictatorship in Venezuela. And if we want Venezuela to return to the prosperous constitutional democracy that its people deserve and that it was just a few decades ago, it is important for other democracies in the region, such as the Dominican Republic, to support the democratic aspirations and the human rights of their brothers and sisters in Venezuela in forums like the OAS and the United Nations. Argentina is a leader in South America that is recovering from years of poor economic leadership. President Macri's election has shown a commitment to stronger bilateral relations with the United States and a return to good governance, the rule of law, and free markets. The news yesterday of charges being brought against the former President, Kirchner demonstrate just how precarious democracy can be and why we need to be on guard for cracks in our own democratic institutions and in democratic institutions in the region and throughout the world. So all of these positions will hold key roles in American foreign policy. And I begin at the outset by thanking you and your families for your commitment to your country and your willingness to serve it abroad. The ranking member.
4: Well, Chairman Rubio, first of all, thank you for convening this hearing. Appreciate it very much. And it's a pleasure to work with you in regards to the nomination for these four um, individuals. I also want to welcome you. Thank you for your willingness to step forward in public service or continue in public service. It's not easy today. These are challenging times. uh, And it's a great sacrifice to your privacy and for your families. So we thank you and we thank your families for willing willing to serve our country. And we're pleased that so many of your family members could be present with us today as we go through uh, this hearing. Uh, Marie Royce for Assistant Secretary for Education and Cultural Affairs. Marie, you seem to have connections in a lot of states. I mean, uh, you got a Florida endorsement, you got a New Mexico endorsement, you're from California, but you tell me you have ties to Maryland. So, obviously, you know the country. So, um, congratulations on so many different contacts and you have an extremely impressive background, well known for your experience in business and your global uh, engagement. So, we thank you for being willing to take on this extremely important position to promote U.S. standing in the world and our democratic principles, our cultural ambassador, cultivating global relationships. Uh, let me just underscore the importance of this. When you look at the alumni clubs from these uh, programs, you find many current and former heads of state. So this truly is America's gift to the international community in promoting our values, More important now than ever before when you see, for example, what's happening in the Philippines with President Duterte's use of extrajudicial killings in order to deal with the um, drug problem there and some kind comments sent by our president in regards to those methods. Believe me, we have challenges today and we need your help. I do want just to acknowledge that the administration's budget would cut your program by 75%. Now, we're not gonna go along with that but we need a friend in your, to advocate with us so that you have the resources you need to carry out this very important assignment. And Mr. Chairman, I might point out, I am pleased that we have four nominees with us today, but I have to acknowledge that there are so many vacancies in the State Department, such a drain of the top uh, seasoned diplomats that have not been filled that I am extremely concerned about the pace of the Trump administration's bringing to us nominees. I can assure you that we will work with the chairman and expedite all the nominees that are brought forward because we desperately need your presence uh, in these in these areas. To Ambassador McManus, uh, thank you for your career service. You've had an extremely impressive career, including being our representative in Vienna to the international organizations, including the IAEA, uh, that uh, gives you a wealth of experience that you can take to Colombia. Uh, the implementation of the peace accords. S- Senator Blunt and I have worked uh, with the um, Atlantic Council in regards to the implementation of the peace accords, and uh, there's a lot of interest in Congress, uh, bipartisan interest. But one of the real challenges that w- we need. To follow up, and this committee is very interested in, is accountability and make sure there's no impunities as to the violations of human rights with, with FARC and others that occurred uh, during this the longest uh, uh, civil war in in our hemisphere. So we do want to make sure that the peace accords are entered into in the right way and that there's a that there's accountability for the for the human rights violations. We have to address the illicit coca cultivations. We know that. It is a major source of concern to us. And as the chairman pointed out, with both Colombia and with Argentina, uh, the impact of Venezuela is, is so noticeable. The, the impact on Colombia, particularly on, on, uh, on uh, people li- trying to, to find a, a life that can, can't exist in Venezuela, uh, and the inability to deliver effectively humanitarian assistance to the people of Venezuela, all that will become part of the charge of our missions in, in, in Colombia and in Argentina. Uh, to, to Judge Prado, we had a chance to talk yesterday. You've had a very distinguished career and we thank you for your willingness. It's, we don't normally get circuit court judges that are on their way to become ambassadors, so, uh, but your experience is, is, is incredible and your commitment to public service is one that we all admire. So I just really wanted to thank you for being willing to take your talent uh, to Argentina. Uh, It is our only major non-NATO ally in Latin America. Uh, This year they will host the G20 as we had a chance to talk about. Uh, And as I explained to you, we need to bring closure to the 1994 bombings of the Jewish Community Center in Argentina. Uh, The cover up here by the former government is one that cannot go unchallenged. And the United States needs to play a role to make sure that Argentina brings closure to that issue, holding those responsible, accountable uh, for, for that bombing. Uh, and I am concerned about the increased presence of China in Argentina. Uh, it's, and uh, it's one in which we need to understand uh, as we go forward, and our ambassador will play a very, very important role there. Mrs. Bernstein, you bring a very impressive credentials uh, in the business community, the philanthropic community. Uh, we thank you for your willingness to, to serve as a, in a very important position. I'll just make one observation which is not your calling. I think President Trump makes it more difficult and I'm gonna just explain why. Many of us are concerned about the fact that President Trump never made full disclosures in his business interests, et cetera. We know that there's Trump uh, organization activities within the Dominican Republic, and we just urge you to understand the sensitivity of maintaining the objectivity of the mission uh, in the Dominican Republic, and we will, we'll be, be depending upon you to, to maintain that objectivity uh, for the American people. Mr. Chairman, I look forward to our witnesses' testimony and to engaging them in some questions.
1: Thank you, we're gonna begin our witness testimony as I, uh, your entire statement will be entered into the record. So if there's an abbreviated version, we're happy to hear anything you have to say. But in the interest of time, we have members coming in and out. I know they wanna ask questions. And um, and so I would encourage you, if you can, uh, to shorten the statements if possible so we can get right to the questions. Ms. Bernstein.
5: Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee, I would first like to thank my longtime friend and esteemed senator from Florida, Senator Bill Nelson, for his kind introduction. It is an honor to be with you today as President Trump's nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Dominican Republic. If confirmed, it will be an honor to be the second woman to serve as U.S. Ambassador to this country. I am humbled that the President has entrusted me with this opportunity with your approval to represent the United States. If confirmed, I look forward to working with the White House, Secretary Tillerson, and our talented and dedicated staff to lead our engagement with such an important regional ally and partner. I would like to take this opportunity to thank my family who are with me today. My wonderful husband, Richard, our children, Arthur, his wife, Carla, Arielle, Alexandra, and Julia, and my mom, Carolyn. I would also like to acknowledge my late father, Archie, whose lifelong passion was to host young exchange student ambassadors in our home, and whose vision enabled me to go to high school in France as an exchange student and later to the School of International Service in Washington, D.C. My family has sustained me throughout the many challenges and opportunities in my life, and without their support, I would not be able to undertake this next and exciting stage of my career. I began one of my first professional positions here on the Hill at the Joint Economic Committee in this very building. After obtaining my MBA, I moved to Florida, where I met my husband and where we raised our family. For over three decades, I have worked alongside my husband at our family insurance business in a number of leadership roles. During this time, I continuously worked in the nonprofit community in a wide variety of leadership positions, particularly in the areas of empowering and supporting women, healthcare issues, and supporting the underserved community. I am especially proud that as the co-founder of the bipartisan organization Palm Beach County Cares, I helped facilitate the delivery of medicine and critically needed supplies to our fellow Americans in Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands in the aftermath of devastating hurricanes. I am confident that my education, and my experience in the public sector, private sector, and nonprofit worlds have prepared me for this important diplomatic mission. If confirmed as U.S. Ambassador, I will work closely with the personnel from across the government to lead our embassy's efforts in forging stronger bonds with the government and the people of the Dominican Republic. If confirmed, this appointment would be especially meaningful to me as a Jewish American. My grandfather, Morris Stein, fled Russia as a child with his family to escape religious discrimination. They came to the United States to pursue the American dream of religious freedom, human rights, democracy, and economic opportunity. That is why I'm humbled to stand before you today and, if confirmed, pledge to continue the fight to preserve these American values. In the Jewish faith, we have a saying, when you save a life, you save the world. During World War II, the Dominican government and its people opened their arms to thousands of Jews who were seeking refuge from the atrocities in Europe. Serving as ambassador would be a personally significant way for me to show gratitude for how the people of the Dominican Republic cared for the Jewish people in their time of need. The Dominican Republic and the United States share a long history. As close neighbors, we also share a mutually beneficial economic, cultural sports, and people-to-people ties, enhanced by a very sizable Dominican-American diaspora. If confirmed, I will work to ensure that trade opportunities continue to grow and deliver prosperity for both our nations, and to ensure that our economic engagement will continue to benefit the United States. Over the years, the Dominican Republic has endured challenges to the health of its civil society. If confirmed, I pledge to to continue to promote policies that advocate for the rule of law, strengthen democratic institutions, and tackle corruption. Fighting illicit trafficking and transnational crime is one of President Trump's highest priorities. The Dominican Republic is one of our strongest law enforcement partners in this hemisphere. Continued strong bilateral security cooperation will help attack the drug-related addiction and crime-related problems that affect both our countries. Finally, if confirmed, I will work tirelessly to facilitate humanitarian, cultural, and educational exchanges that reaffirm to the people of the Dominican Republic America's enduring foreign policy values of democracy, freedom, and human rights. Thank you very much for considering my nomination. I look forward to answering your questions.
1: Thank you. Ms. Rice.
6: Thank you. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for inviting me here today. And I'd like to thank Senator Udall for his kind introduction. I want to thank President Trump and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson for their confidence in me, and if confirmed, It will be a privilege to represent you and the American people globally. I would like to thank Ed, my husband of 33 years, for his love and inspiration. And I would like to recognize my mother, Mary Barbara, my father-in-law, Ed Senior, and my late father, Ronald Porter and Aunt Peg. To my family and friends in California and my friends that are here today, I could not ask for better support. I'm a passionate champion of people-to-people exchanges. Time and trust in ECA programs like Fulbright and the International Visitor Leadership Program have built important relationships. One in three current world leaders are alumni of U.S. government exchange programs. So are over 500 former heads of state and 84 Nobel laureates. As a professor at California State Polytechnic University, Pomona, I participated in international exchange efforts through educating teachers and students from abroad. I saw the impact of our ideals, values, and policies on their worldview and on their perception of U.S. foreign policy. Because of the prevalence of disinformation in many parts of the world, these ECA exchanges bring real-world experiences in the United States that foster credibility and trust. These people-to-people ties are an important way to show that U.S. disagreement with a given regime overseas are with the government of the country and not with the people. Thus, academic, cultural, and athletic exchanges cultivate mutual understanding, as well as friendly and peaceful relations between the people of the United States and the people of other countries. In my time as a business executive in in the telecommunications industry, working in emerging markets in Africa, Europe, South America, and Asia, I obtained a deep appreciation of the role played by our educational programs. So often, those I met in key decision-making roles had been the beneficiaries of ECA's bilateral agreements with foreign partners, governments, businesses, and NGOs. They had experienced the richness of America's political, economic, and cultural life. And as a result, they were very receptive to what America had to offer. As a delegate to Hungary and Poland in the American Council of Young Political Leaders (ACYPL) program, I experienced the effectiveness of these bipartisan programs. ACYPL promotes mutual understanding and cultivates long-lasting relationships among next-generation leaders. It was an honor for me to later serve as Secretary of the Board. I served as a trustee of Meridian International, which works closely with the State Department and other U.S. government agencies to provide exchange and policy programs that strengthen U.S. engagement with the world and prepares leaders to address complex global problems. My professional career began with the Procter & Gamble Company in sales management and research and development worldwide. At P&G, I helped create and launch a mentoring program for women and minorities to help close gender and racial gaps in the workplace and attract diverse talent. I raise this point because American diversity and the advances in opportunity for women and minorities in our society serve as an example for those struggling for full rights abroad. Prospects for empowerment, democracy, and the rule of law worldwide are advanced when young people can participate in our public diplomacy programs. Involvement of American and international participants from traditionally underrepresented groups create opportunities that are open to all. This inclusion is an American value and advances American interests. From creating programs at Cal Poly Pomona, p and Marriott International to creating a program for Muslim women in Afghanistan and later Iraq, I have volunteered my time to those who have faced discrimination and lacked opportunities. As a private sector appointee on the Advisory Committee on International Communications and Information Policy at the Department of State, I developed long distance mentoring programs. As noted by the Senator Udall, I have more than 30 years of experience in the private sector and small business and as a full-time university professor. If confirmed, I would aim to strengthen our people-to-people ties even further. I'm very honored to be appointed to this important position, and I will focus all my efforts on improving the vital missions of these programs. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Ambassador McManus.
7: Thank you, Senator, Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, Mr. Ranking Member, members of the committee. It's an honor to appear here today as the President's nominee for U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Colombia. If confirmed, I am committed to representing the President, the American people, and their national interests in a country so key to our security and prosperity in the Western Hemisphere. I would like to thank uh, first my wife, uh, Carol, and our son, Chris for their support during my 32-year career in the Foreign Service. Without that support, I would not be here today. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Colombia has transformed itself. Mr. Chairman, I find myself particularly challenged by the fact that y- your introduction and the ranking member's introduction on Colombia were a perfect uh, articulation of our policy. It is a representation of the bipartisan nature of that uh, support over the past 20 years. and. Um, I would be happy to read my statement, my abbreviated statement, but I would prefer, in fact, to, uh, in the Senate tradition, associate myself with those remarks and leave myself available for a full set of questions. It is um, a well-known account. It is one that we all understand, and I look forward to talking to you about it. If confirmed, I plan on representing our country fully uh, and, and in a fashion that would continue the progress that we've made under Plan Colombia.
1: Yeah, I think Senator Cardin makes the point that anytime uh, your statement basically is you agree with what we have to say, it's always a good sign, but that's just our point.
7: <laughs> I, I got lucky, Senator.
1: All right, Judge Prada, do you agree with us too? Okay. <laughs> 101%. I think that uh, Mr.
8: McManus should have checked with the rest of us on on the panel as to whether he should have cut his statement short, because I think the rest of us would have preferred that it be longer. (laughs) Um, uh, Mr. Chairman, Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, and other members of the committee, including uh, Senator Kane who's here, and I'll acknowledge him, uh, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you uh, this afternoon. And I also wish to thank my good friend, Senator Carnan. We go back a very, very long way when we were both young lawyers. We have an informal agreement that if I don't tell stories on him, he won't tell stories on me. So I'll leave it at that and thank him for uh, being here today and introducing me to the committee. It's an honor to appear before you today as the president's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to the Argentine Republic. I must say it's a rather awkward position for me because as an appellate judge, I'm used to being the one behind the bench and asking the questions and controlling the little red lights and light traffic. So it's a little different situation for me today, but be that as it may, I hope to assure you that my career as a judge, my work ethic, my resolve, make me well qualified to be America's voice in Argentina. I thank President Trump for his confidence in me and for this opportunity. And I thank Secretary Rex Tillerson for supporting my nomination. I'm here today with my wife of 44 years, Maria. She has been my strongest supporter throughout my life and our marriage and in this new endeavor. She understands that there is an important role for the spouse of an ambassador and she's eager to take on that responsibility. We are a team and she's coming with me as part of my team. Our son Edward could not join us today, but he's very enthusiastic about this opportunity for his father and I think he'd rather save his money for possible trips further south than to come up here to DC today. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge some of my former law clerks that are in the audience. As a judge for many years, I've had the opportunity to hire young bright lawyers from various law schools throughout the country and they have been part of what they call Team Prado, and I wish to thank them for appearing here today with me. My career has prepared me well for this new responsibility. As a federal judge, I listened, I gathered information, I analyzed it carefully, and ultimately had the responsibility to make difficult decisions. I understood that with the title of judge came power and respect. But with that power and with that respect also came a responsibility to do what the law demanded regardless of the consequences. Likewise, the title of ambassador carries with it a great deal of prestige. But with that prestige also comes a great responsibility to represent the United States of America. My goal will be to earn the respect that comes with the title of ambassador and to represent our country to the best of my ability. I also realize that while I might serve as the face of the court, there are dozens of persons behind the scenes that make the courts function properly. The same is true of an embassy. While I might be the face of the embassy, I understand that there is a team and many dedicated employees behind the scenes making sure that America is properly represented. An embassy is only as strong as those who make it function, from the ambassador, to the consular section, to the people working in the cafeteria. We are a team working together with the same goals, the same mission. I have had the opportunity to travel to Argentina on numerous occasions. I have made presentations and participated in workshops across Argentina and have made friends among the Argentine legal community. I know how important the rule of law is and how important a strong independent judicial branch can be to a country if it is to be a solid democracy. My intent is to continue working with the lawyers and the judges of Argentina in improving the judicial system and strengthening the confidence the people have in the judicial system. As a former prosecutor, I appreciate the efforts of our law enforcement agencies to make our country and the world a safer place for all citizens. It is my intent to fully support United States law enforcement agencies' efforts in supporting Argentine law enforcement and their fight against crime. I am committed to help build capacity within the Argentine police to promote security in a vital regional ally. As a son of a World War II veteran and myself a retired Army reservist, I appreciate the importance of a strong military commitment to a democratic world free from the threat of terrorism. Our support of the Argentine military must continue. I also hope to work closely on commercial and economic issues to increase opportunities opportunities for United States business in Argentina. I will work to further enhance our bilateral trade relationship. Argentina is the eighth largest country in the world by land area and has a powerful and diverse economy. While the country has no doubt dealt with its share of economic challenges, the current Macri administration has established wide-reaching reforms seeking to strengthen Argentina's market and its position in the global economic community. I intend to work closely with the Argentine administration to not only assist them in these efforts, but to strengthen mutuality between beneficial trade and commerce of our two countries. I look forward to enhancing our continuing friendship and partnership with a close ally. Through our efforts, we can strengthen peace and prosperity in both countries, and I look forward to representing the United States on the global stage.
1: I welcome your questions. Thank you all for being here. I'm going to just question one of the nominees and then turn it over to our members, and then I'll be able to remain and continue on our work. But I wanted to start with Ambassador McManus. You served as Executive Assistant to uh, Secretary Rice and uh, and then Secretary Clinton in, in particular uh, during uh, 2012 when we experienced the terrible terrorist attack at our diplomatic compound in Benghazi, and a number of members, not just on the committee, but, but off, off it have raised questions about this period of time, and so I wanted to give you an opportunity to address it in this committee. Let me begin by just asking you, when did you know that the attacks were terrorism and not related to anti-American protests, and when did you first inform the Secretary of State of that fact.
7: Um, Senator, thank you. I'm going to try and answer that uh, in the correct order. Um, I first learned of the attack when it was reported from the uh, Diplomatic Security Command Center to our uh, operations center. And they, in turn, contacted me to let me know that there had been an attack or that there was an attack underway. to to, uh, uh, identify when I had knowledge that it was a terrorist attack is a different arc. Um, My response uh, initially and all of my communications were internal uh, and intended only to inform people as required to understand what the secretary's um, uh, whereabouts were and what the secretary was uh, uh, addressing at that particular moment. Uh, and this was over the course of several hours in the afternoon and into the evening. Um, I use the term terrorist attack because that's what I judged it to be. It was not a legal determination. It was not based on uh, uh, an amass of, of evidence or, um, or analysis. It was the term that I used to describe what I saw taking place.
1: Uh, when did you first inform the Secretary of State? Um,
7: well, I would say within minutes, it was probably uh, uh, approximately three thirty, three twenty, if I'm not mistaken, um, in the afternoon when I informed the secretary that this was underway and that we were monitoring what exactly was taking place.
1: Okay, um, one more question. And, and again, to give you the opportunity to, to answer, did, did you ever purposely mislead or advocate for misleading the American public about the nature of the
7: attack? Never, Senator. That that. Never. Okay, thank you. Senator Cardin.
4: Judge Prado, you and I had a chance to talk about uh, the use of your talents in the legal system uh, to deal with a, the problem in Argentina from the 94 bombing of the Jewish Community Center. and I just really want to get on the record here our concern that that matter be um, uh, of high priority to our mission. Uh, that there be justice in regards to what happened and and any uh, cover up that was engaged by the government.
8: Yes, sir, Senator. I'm I'm encouraged that the present administration has refocused its investigation on those horrible uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, we share, unfortunately, that with Argentina that our country too has been attacked by terrorists and many people were uh, killed and, and injured. Uh, the administration is is going forward with investigations, uh, uh, not only about the uh, bombings that took place, but also the uh, killing, murdering death of uh, Alberto Nisman, who was a special prosecutor that was investigating the case uh, and that mysterious death. And uh, um, I hope to get down there and help uh, the process in any way I can with regard to any assistance that we might provide, whether it be as prosecutors or to the assistance to the judicial process.
4: thank you for that. There is at least some indication that there were foreign interests involved in that attack and that there may have been governmental cover-up as to the investigation. So that obviously is a matter of grave concern.
8: Yes, I would like to just encourage the Iranian government to cooperate in the investigation and assist in the investigation.
4: Thank you. Ms. Bernstein, uh, I'm sure you're aware of the 2013 decision of the Dominican Constitutional Court that stripped hundreds of thousands of Dominions of, their Hait- of Haitian descent of their nationality, regardless of rendering them stateless. These are people who for a long time have lived in the DR uh, and the the constitutional court has now declared that they have no citizenship; that they are li- literally stateless. What would be your approach to ensuring that these individuals have their nationality restored?
5: Thank you, Senator, for that very important question. Uh, humanitarian rights are very, very important to me, especially as someone whose family fled Russia, and because of the lack of respect for. Um, human rights so this is something that's deeply ingrained in my in my soul and, and this is something that uh, a question that's very very important to me um, first of all I would I, I agree with you that human rights uh, should be respected and um, the Pope even Pope John Paul said that everyone if I may quote everyone should have the opportunity to eat enough to be cared for when ill to find housing to study to overcome illiteracy to find worthwhile and properly paid work, all that provides a truly human life for men and women, young and old. And I would take a very active role in working with embassy or embassy staff. Uh, I understand that um, this is something that we do, uh, if confirmed, that, I, um, that we work to help them gain passports and uh, I would hopefully work with my, um, my esteemed colleague, uh, Mich- Michelle Sisson, Ambassador Sisson in Haiti, and try and work with her if should there be any issues where we could partner together and try to make sure that the restoration of of the uh, people that are, quote, stateless. And I would ask that you rights. keep
4: this committee informed in, on that process. Uh, these individuals know uh, basically have been there for long periods of time. Correct. There is no no other uh, country that they belong that Because their language is slightly different, they have been discriminated against by DR. And, and we would just ask that you make this a, a priority to keep us engaged on, on this subject.
5: Absolutely, and if confirmed, I can assure you that I look forward to working with you to assure that this will happen. And I look forward to keeping staying engaged with you on this issue.
4: Mr. Royce, I really appreciated your testimony. Uh, it was almost as good as Ambassador McManus's testimony. <laughs> But it was, um, I, I really appreciated the way you talked about the exchanges and American values and the impact it's had, because I agree with everything you just said. And human rights is a priority of this committee, it's one of my top priorities. American values to me are our strength. And we've got to be pretty clear about it. It's being challenged today, it's not easy. There's a lot of missing, uh, concerns about whether America still maintains that global position as it relates to our traditional values. And I just want you to know that there's a lot of support by both Democrats and Republicans in Congress to make sure that your role is clear, that America's strength are our values, and that we want you to have the tools you need to continue these exchanges to promote, I would say, universal values, Americans' values as you move forward, where there's gonna be challenges as because of the current issues that are before America and before the global community. So will you be open and frank with us as to how we can help?
6: Oh, thank you, Senator. Um, well, uh, to, to, first of all, I wanna say thank you for your thoughtful comment and, um, and your willingness to help. Uh, what I'd like to sh- share in your opening statement uh, that you stated was how important um, exchange programs are as far as a valued aspect of America's international leadership. Um, As you know, and you mentioned your statement um, about resources, and I want to assure you that if confirmed at any level of resources, I'm going to utilize my skills for coming from the private sector, where I uh, manage with challenging budgets oftentimes, and I'm going to leverage the assets of the ECA and that includes the experts at the State Department, our resources, and you mentioned the, um, the, the alumni. That's really important. In addition to that, I'm gonna marshal the resources against our highest public policy priorities for foreign policy. Uh, so I will just say that I'm gonna welcome your feedback and be open to it. Uh, any way that we can make any improvements um, to enhance and improve our public policy, um, I would welcome that.
4: Thank you. Uh, and with your indulgence, Mr. Chairman, I just want to ask Ambassador McManus, uh, in regards to the peace process in Colombia, and the reconciliation is critically important that the terms of the uh, peace agreements as it relates to those that have been, have violated human rights, that they're held accountable or consistent with the peace agreements, there's, there's responsibilities on both sides. And what I find that when peace agreements are entered into, the human rights component sometimes gets left on the table as far as enforcement is concerned because it is not considered to be of equal priority to the other provisions in the peace accord. I would ask that that needs to be of highest priority and the U.S. mission can play a a major role to make sure that, in fact, is carried out.
7: Senator, I, I, I comment briefly on that. Um, uh, first, um, I think that the uh, peace accords themselves uh, have woven into them an understanding that the uh, repair that needs to be done to the social fabric in that country is part and parcel of both the, the uh, scourge of uh, illegal narcotics and the response to that scourge in the peace accord and, and following which is um, the introduction of uh, state presence, of state institutions in areas that have traditionally not seen investment and participation by the state. One, for security reasons initially, but secondly, because they are areas that are are in need of growth, and many of them, in fact, line up with areas of the country where indigenous populations or Afro-Colombian populations are prevalent. So um, the the key word, as you said, is accountability, accountability for crimes, and then um, an accountability to resolve part of the uh, the underlying causes for the state being in the woeful condition it was in when we first went forward with uh, Plan Colombia. Human rights must be a, a part of that, and we've seen reactions from the Colombian government in terms of Um, of providing greater protection to um, labor leaders and uh, human rights defenders, it is still a problem and it is going to be over the course of the generation that makes changes in Colombia that will build out, I think, the institutions of Colombian governance that will provide the most important protections.
1: Senator Kane,
9: Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to each of you. This is a very well-qualified panel for the positions that you've been nominated for Appreciate your willingness to serve. If I could ask you, uh, Mr. McManus, quickly, we were talking in the back room, and I was saying similar things, that the a lot of times we wonder whether the effect of American foreign policy is, is positive. Um, we try hard. We have good motivations. We invest a lot. Often, despite all of those things, we get involved in other countries, and we're not happy with the outcomes. And then that makes people question um, you know, whether we should make the effort at all. But Colombia is a perfect example of a, a careful and adroit and sustained investment between administrations and Congresses of both parties that has really been transformative. I We've seen Colombia go from kind of a near-failed state to a wonderful economic and security partner yes. for the United States, a leader in its region. I remember going to visit the multinational force of observers that patrols and provides peace in the Sinai and the border between Egypt and Israel. And Colombia is a major participant in that peacekeeping operation, as they are in others. And so there's a lot at stake at this point in making sure that progress continues. One of the issues I know that Colombia is very interested in, and I wanted to get your take on it, is Colombia's desire to be part of the OECD. Um, So I'd like to hear your thought about whether Colombia seems to be on track to meet benchmarks for ascension to the OECD um, and what are the obstacles that remain and then what more could the United States do to be an ally in that effort?
7: Thank you, Senator. Um, uh, Columbia's desire and, and in fact ambition to become part of um, OECD, to, be, to join a, in a community of nations that believe in um, uh, normative uh, standards and are willing to prove that they're capable of it, is a a great sign that they are prepared to move forward. Our trade relationship with them now has as its framework uh, a um, trade cooperation agreement, which has resulted in a trade of a fairly good trade balance. It's one of the best in the world. Um, A trade uh, in goods of about 23 uh, million, uh, sorry, $23 billion a year. Um, It varies depending upon a number of factors. Um, but also that um, both that trade agreement and the desire to join OECD has provided an impetus for a continuation in progress on, um, on standards, on labor standards, on resolving um, uh, conflicts that exist that have to do with protection of, uh, of intellectual property, um, the uh, access to the market of U.S. companies. Um, U.S. companies have uh, expressed, continue to, a great desire to invest in Colombia. Colombia is a country of 48 uh, million people. Um, It has a prominent role in the region uh, and has um, ready access to other markets. It is really at a point where it should be developing in a very expansive way in terms of a larger global um, uh, footprint. There are issues that have yet to be uh, resolved. Um, uh, there is every hope that they can be resolved uh, in short order, um, and, and it, but it's under a concentrated review by the um, by the U.S. Trade Representative by the Labor Department and by the Department of Commerce. I've spoken with both Commerce and, and Labor about these issues. Um, this is a serious and ongoing conversation and will continue to be so because there are elements of the Colombian economy that continue to involve directly issues such as child labor. And I don't mean child labor as in cutting the lawn on the weekend, really the, the misuse of children in uh, a labor market. So those are again, longer-term shifts that have to take place. I think we're very positive in in terms of the movement and hopeful that that can reach a good conclusion.
9: I, I would encourage you in that way. I think this has a lot of benefit for um, Colombia if it's done, but I also think it has benefit for the OECD. An organization like the OECD can easily kind of be viewed as a northern hemisphere thing. Um, and I think it's really important that, that Southern countries around the world also find them their own places in organizations like this. And so I would encourage you in that way. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Royce, let me uh, just put a pet issue of mine on the table for your new job. And that is uh, in the area of education exchange. Um, of course we have a crown jewel education system, Fulbright scholarships and other things. I so often worry though when, the, when we talk about education we always dis career and technical education and I think there's an excellent opportunity for exchanges in this space. If you uh, qualify for a Pell Grant in this country you can use it on a college campus but you can't use it at an apprenticeship program or a career and technical program not on a college campus. If you're in the military like my son you get a tuition assistance benefit. You can use it at a college campus. You can't use it to take a welding certification exam if you're an ordinance officer. if uh, the, the, We have had a presidential scholars program for 50 years that recognizes high school students who are superstars. Only uh, in recently, Senator Portman and I convinced President Obama to start recognizing career and technical education superstars too. You can pretty much look across the spectrum of U.S. education policy and we say college is great and we've kind of underestimated career, technical education, and apprenticeships. There's some superb apprenticeship programs around the world, Switzerland, Germany, the United States has some wonderful examples, Newport News Shipbuilding Apprenticeship Program in Virginia. But I would just hope as you're thinking about educational exchanges, how to both share our best practices and learn from the best practices of others, that it wouldn't just be about college or, or, you know, uh, elementary and secondary, but we would make sure that we include career technical and apprenticeship programs as part of what we both wanna learn about and both want to spotlight that we do well.
6: Thank you, Senator Kane, for that input. I would also add um, that I would be very open to looking at that, those types of programs. And as you are very well aware, many programs have been made um, and conducted with uh, working back and forth with Congress. A couple of those include the Kennedy Luger program for high school students. Another one you probably are aware of is the Ben Gilman program. And under Ben Gilman, I provided an opportunity for people that were first-generation uh, students from their families to go to college. Mm. and helps with financial need. Of course, again, that was in direct consultation with Congress. So I would just add that I think th- these types of ideas are great to um, think about and include. So uh, I appreciate your input and we would look forward to... if if I'm confirmed, uh, working with you on this.
9: That's very good, thank you so much. And I have another question or two that I'll just submit for the written record.
1: Thank you. Um, Ambassador McManus, I wanted to ask you about cocaine because from 2006 to 2010, according to the RAND study, there there was a 50% drop off in consumption of cocaine in the United States. And then it began to climb to, to the point where we've seen record supplies of cocaine over the last couple of years, obviously most of not much of much of not most of it from uh, from Colombia, and the increase of course has led to a drop in prices and an increase in the rate of consumption in both the United States and in parts of Europe that the timing of that climb of course coincided with the peace deal and one of among they stopped aerial eradication, but the other thing that happened is they created this sort of program where um, they were paying growers, not to to stop growing coca, but to be in a position to qualify for it. For those payments, farmers had to be growing coca so people started growing it so they would qualify for the payments when they became available. The point is, we now have seen historic numbers of cocaine and we know it's destined to come here and already cocaine is the number, it kills more people than heroin does among African Americans in the United States, so it's a burgeoning problem. Describe, it is my belief that if confirmed you will be the ambassador to Colombia at a time in which cocaine is going to begin to compete with heroin and opiates as a headline issue in the United States and immediately people are going to realize where it's coming from and there's going to be real tension created as a result of it. Give us some ideas about how you plan to get ahead of that both in in your interactions with the Colombian government and and your United States government. Because I see that coming, and I see it potentially becoming a major irritant in the relationship between our countries, and, and quite frankly, I could foresee people begin to question, not me, but others begin to question the wisdom of a plan that's supposed to be dealing with this, and yet it, they'll be saying, that we're spending all this money, and it isn't working. So how do you plan to get out ahead of it, uh, both working with our counterparts in Colombia and, of course, your, your, the folks at the State Department and here in the U.S. government?
7: Thank you, Senator. Um, I I I think that irritation um, is already there. It's beyond an irritation. The president, uh, in last year's um, uh, um, declaration on a major's list, a list of major drug-producing and drug-trafficking nations, um, expressed a a deep concern about the increase in uh, coca cultivation and cocaine production um, in in Colombia. Uh, the Colombians have felt the same way. Uh, members of this committee have expressed themselves of this view, um, and and it and the Colombian government itself has also uh, expressed the concern that they need to have on this issue. Um, the um, uh, most recent experience on interdiction um, has been a positive one. Uh, in 2017. 500 metric tons of cocaine, uh, cocaine hydrochloride were interdicted and, and cocaine-paste. Um, as well, the highest number of, um, uh, of hectares of, of coca uh, cultivation were eradicated. Most of that with forced eradication, some of it a much smaller number with voluntary eradication. Um, the Colombian approach, which is a new strategy... And is while it is tied to and, and is part of the, the uh, addressing cocaine that was built into the peace accords, um, both rural reform and um, and addressing uh, illicit drugs were elements of the peace accord. They placed responsibilities well within the grasp of the Colombian government to begin to address these in a coordinated way. So they have been using and, and beginning to use a, a whole of government approach. Um, Now the growth is due to a number of factors. Uh, You mentioned the um, uh, payments that would be made to um, farmers who were uh, cultivating. We saw that growth uh, beginning uh, earlier, in fact, before the end of aerial Sprang. Uh, Some of that we take to be encouragement by the FARC. Uh, Some of it was an anticipation of negotiation, we think, for the peace accords, and some of it was clearly related to the opportunity to turn in hectares of of coca cultivation for a cash payment. Um, All of those have a predictable quality to them. What is absolutely necessary is the commitment of the Colombian government to reduce these numbers. Uh, Most recently, we had a high-level dialogue with Colombia um, uh, earlier this month Uh, and the Colombians have committed themselves to an eradication within five years to a a level of 50% current uh, numbers. Now, we believe that there is both the focus, the uh, appropriate tools, the professionalized military that was part of and one of the the outcomes of Plan Colombia um, that lead to the ability of Colombia to do that. I recognize that there is a chain of, of, um, of uh, suffering that starts in Colombia and gets to the United States. And every country that is affected along the way, and certainly Americans um, who are affected by um, the introduction of, uh, of illicit narcotics in the United States, are part of that and feel that suffering. Um, We know we have a responsibility at this end, and and we've spoken about it in terms of demand reduction. Uh, Unfortunately, demand also appears to be rising. Some of those indicators, like the number of first-time users, continues to push up. Um, These are all issues that are going to have to be dealt with in a coordinated fashion at our end, and we understand what the coordination needs to be at that end.
1: Well, And it's impossible to talk about cocaine and its distribution without mentioning... Well, let me begin by saying that even as some elements of the FARC may have disbanded and disarmed and, and decommissioned, the space they once occupied in many parts of Colombia have been taken up by cartel and or ELN elements. And you're someone that's familiar, very familiar with the region, and obviously, as a career service at the highest levels of the State Department, are aware of this. Uh, it is indisputable, right, that the vent that the distribution of cocaine is wholly is is assisted actively by elements in the Venezuelan government that participate both in its distribution, and as as we've seen with kingpin destinations and and sanctions in this part of the, and and, and indictments in the United States against some of these elements, and our own counterparts in Colombia point to this. that The the Venezuelan government is supportive of the ELN, has often hosted its officials on that side of the territory, but without doubt, as you see the aerial routes, that are distributing through the Caribbean, they almost all proceed from Venezuelan territory of Colombian cocaine. And therefore, as we look at this surge, it is fair to say that elements within the Venezuelan government and or military are active participants in the distribution of these cocaine routes.
7: Senator, it would, um, it would attest credulity to believe that the ELN, which has traditionally operated along the Venezuelan border and has also acquired um, greater uh, license in areas that had previously been um, controlled by the FARC, that that border somehow becomes uh, a, a, an, an impossible barrier for them. Uh, it is uh, the, the, the border between Colombia and Venezuela is ripe for uh, mischief and for illegality. Uh, the ELN has an interest in uh, creating uh, opportunities for um, for generating uh, illegal funds. So uh, I would ha- have to say that um, only somebody who was waiting for uh, the final analysis to make that conclusion would disagree with your um, with your statement. Well, then I-, I, th- I don't.
1: It, it, it's it's also fair to say that if you look at the challenges facing Colombia, whether it's assistance to the ELN, whether it's a massive migratory issue now with refugees fleeing Venezuela, whether it's the distribution of cocaine, including by elements within the government, the nephews of the dictator in Venezuela who's been convicted, um, Venezuela poses a very significant national security threat to our strongest ally in South America, in Colombia.
7: That's correct, Senator. Um, The um, Summit of the Americas uh, this year, in April, um, has as its main theme, uh, democratic governance against corruption. Um, You could put a colon after that and then say the problem of Venezuela. Uh, Clearly, um, Venezuela as a regional threat as a threat to Colombia is the principal problem of today, of right now. There are um, uh, uh, solutions and steps that can be taken and that we've called for, that the, that the um, uh, United States government has called for, that are simple steps of return to democracy, return to a respect for human rights, allow f- free and fair and transparent elections to go forward with international observers, uh, open a humanitarian corridor for food and 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 medicine many of the venezuelans who are crossing the border um, are seeking medical attention are seeking simple vaccinations uh, uh, children are dying babies are dying as a result of that inability to, to secure basic care
1: in the in the one last question in that regard and that is as you see more and more people coming across the border by the way some are uh, Uh, citizens of both Venezuela and Colombia. Yes. Um, But as as they come across the border and more strain is placed upon our allies, do you anticipate at some point, if not already, that the United States will need to step up and potentially provide Colombia with assistance along with the international community to deal with the pressures being created by these large number of refugees flowing into Colombia from Venezuela?
7: I do, Senator. I've, I've had conversations um, with uh, with uh, USAID um, and with other elements in the State Department that would be directly involved in that kind of assistance. Um, I, I think Columbia understands deeply the, the depth of this particular problem and this crisis um, and are prepared to seek uh, support when it's needed uh, in order to, to help alleviate the enormous stress that it's gonna place both on the individuals, the Venezuelans themselves, who have been displaced, um, but also on the systems in Colombia that are going to need to be able to respond to it.
1: Thank you. Ms. Bernstein, I want to ask you two, or I guess it's one question with two parts about the Dominican Republic. One of the things that's concerning to us is while your allies of Dominican Republic and, and work with them and have strong cultural and economic ties in settings like the United Nations, um, their votes, are very often not aligned with our priorities. As an example, uh, it's my view and I think the view of most members of the Senate. In fact, I know it is because 100 members of the Senate addressed the letter that I led with Senator Coons to the UN Secretary General to express our deep concern about the unfair treatment of Israel at the United Nations. Uh, It is a entity and a body that frequently is home to anti-Israel resolutions that in many cases attempts to delegitimize Israel. For example, in 2016, at its 71st session, the UN General Assembly adopted 18 resolutions directed at Israel. Resolutions on which the United States voted no, the Dominican Republic voted for each of these 18 resolutions. We have also seen them at the OAS be less than cooperative on efforts uh, to pressure um, the Venezuelan government, in essence, efforts to allow the OAS to function the way it's supposed to, and that is to be an organization of democracies in the region that protect democracy and that um, condemn nations that are violating it. And obviously one of the reasons potentially why this is happening is their, so their, their membership in petro which is a group of countries that receive subsidized oil, subsidized oil from, from Venezuela in exchange for Venezuelan influence in their government. I would just ask, do you commit to this committee that this is an issue that you're going to begin a dialogue with the highest levels of the government of the Dominican Republic, both on their anti-Israel votes at the United Nations and also at, at their consistently not wanting to vote in favor of supporting democracy in the region? Will you commit to this committee that that will be among the issues that you will raise, if so directed by the Department of State, at the highest levels of the Dominican government?
5: Yes, absolutely, Senator, and I look forward to working with you in concert on this, if confirmed.
1: Thank you. Judge Prado, this has already been asked, and I just want to reiterate, I I think that Argentina has a lot of positive things happening. Uh, They're a member of the Lima Group, as an example, a a uh, a group of nations that have taken it upon themselves to combine and coordinate efforts to pressure uh, Venezuela's dictatorship and, and to push forward. And I would just ask, uh, that do you commit to doing all you can in your role to coordinate with your U.S. counterparts and the other member countries and to be continually supportive of the Argentine government's uh, commitment to this process?
8: Yes, Senator. Uh, yes, Senator, I, I, I do. Uh, President Macri has been a, a long-time critic, critic of Venezuela's government and the treatment of the citizens of Venezuela by... Uh, Maduro uh, administration. Uh, he took efforts to have uh, Venezuela taken out of the Mercosur, which is a common market group of uh, South American countries. So I think there there's some positive uh, moves being made by the Argentine government in its criticism of, of how uh, the Venezuela administration is treating its citizens and the lack of democracy. And I intend to do all I can to support their Uh, efforts to uh, remedy the situation.
1: And as I mentioned in the opening statement, just yesterday the Argentine judiciary referred for public trial former President Christina Kirchner and other senior officials in connection with a cover-up of the 94 bombing of a Jewish community center in Buenos Aires by the Iranian government. They're accused of abuse of power and obstruction of justice in trying to avoid holding Iran responsible for the terror attack which, by the way, killed 85 people. And I would just ask if you could commit to the committee, and if confirmed, that you'll not only do all you can to support their government in the search for justice for those who died in that attack, but also that you'll support uh, and do all you can on behalf of the U.S. government to support them in any ongoing investigations into what I believe was the murder and the assassination of a prosecutor, Alberto Nisman, uh, who was on to the truth uh, when his life was taken. Uh.
8: Yes, Senator. I appreciate that question, and I will do all I can to support the uh, MACRE administration in its investigation of this very serious, tragic uh, situation that has occurred in their country.
1: And finally, Ms. Royce, Florida, my home state, has benefited from educational and cultural exchanges in numerous ways, including a large impact on our economy. There was an article in the Washington Post in November of last year that that basically outlined that there's been a sharp change in foreign student enrollment in the U.S. with numbers declining in both 2016 and in 2017 of international students coming to the United States. Um, I was just, uh, I guess my question is, if confirmed, what ideas do you have about increasing participation of educational and cultural exchanges both here and, and abroad?
6: Thank you, Senator, for your question. Um, the information that I've received is that we've had um, 1 million international visitors this past year and the year before. So, of course, I would like to continue that. I'd like to also add uh, in that number, we even have 14,000. You're talking about students, international students?
1: I think it's a combination of students and cultural exchange.
6: Okay. Um, I'm sorry, maybe you can repeat the question.
1: I think the question is, what, what can we do to continue to ensure, um, p- part of what's happening is, um, you know, in some countries around the world, they now have options available that they could only have gotten in the United States in years past. That's a part of development. But there might be some other factors at play that might be discouraging the growth in study abroad in the United States and or in participating in exchanges between students or are coming here, and whether it's rhetoric in our politics or perhaps the unavailability of some of these programs. But one of the things that we notice in our work, and I think the ranking member would agree, is oftentimes when you meet with important foreign leaders, one of the things you'll notice in their biography is that they graduated from an American university, and and it actually has a real impact in our ability to engage with them because they are familiar with our system of government. They're familiar with the United States. It's a real advantage to this country. What ideas do you have to to ensure that we that continue on that trend as we may face new global competitors for that, and or perhaps uh, options domestically that that may no longer make our universities or our cultural exchanges as attractive as they may have been. Okay,
6: thank you very much for the question, Senator. Um, You mentioned about the interlocutors of um, top world leaders, and I mentioned that in my opening statement that one in three world leaders today are actually people that experience the United States firsthand through the international ECA programs that we've had. Um, I would also add that we've been doing some exciting things by trying to promote uh, English, and we have English centers around the world where we uh, offer uh, young people the opportunity to learn English, and they can do that online. And so consequently, that also gives them an exposure. Um, Another thing that's exciting about ECA right now is we've got some digital diplomacy initiatives. Uh, Even our Facebook page, we have seven basic uh, different Facebook pages, and we've got um, the third largest hits on one of the Facebook pages. And we've got a Twitter feed. We've got digital initiatives where people can actually go online and have a mentor. Um, I'll just add one one type of program is the Christopher Stevens Initiative, which is actually all virtual. Um, excuse me, after our former ambassador. And so consequently, we're engaging with people that normally would never have the opportunity to interface with an American. And so I think that's another example where we're able to create some hybrid programs to expose people, to also increase our numbers. But what I've understood from um, the information I've received is that We've had a number of people that are still continuing to come to the United States uh, from the International Visitor Program, and there's a strong economic impact. I'm sure you know the numbers. Uh, Those students have created 450,000 jobs here in the United States, $39 billion worth of uh, impact financially. Uh, Again I think um, I'll continue to try to do everything I can, if confirmed, to uh, try to continue to promote um, ways for people to be interested in coming to the United States. As again, because these leaders are so important. Again, and also, I just add on a short-term basis, uh, having these leaders here gives us an opportunity to talk about things that are very important, uh, countering terrorism, and the managing the refugee crisis, for example, or even responding to disaster relief. Because these people are already here. So, if that's a leader or exchange student, and if it's a student, of course, they're getting exposed to American values. We mentioned human rights, democracy, rule of law. Um, free speech is another one. We're talking about countering uh, uh, aggressive regimes, getting the opportunity to be able to speak and gather freeway, freely. And I know your senator also on um, technology. Uh, even uh, f- open and free data flows and uh, ex- cross-border communications. I think that's really important. Thank you.
4: I, if I could ask, um, Ms. Royce, um, on the, the summer work travel programs, J-1 visas, 17 senators sent a letter to Secretary Tillerson last summer uh, in regards to the importance of the continuation of that program. It's been under concern. Uh, I could just give you one example. I, 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 I have talked with the, uh, the Jewish camp uh, uh, organizers and the use of the, the J-1 visa for counselors at the camp for cultural um, uh, opportunities for the, for the campers there. It's an incredible program uh, we are concerned about in this immigration debate that this program remain uh, as a high priority in continuation what is your view on the on this program okay
6: Thank you Senator Cardinal, for your uh, question um, wanted to share with you that I am familiar with the letter and I also was um, impressed with the fact that uh, each of you uh, that signed on, really talked about the, the importance of the summer work travel program uh, to the local community. Uh, in addition, uh, you recognized something that's very important in that letter, which was the fact that Americans should also have the opportunity to be able to go for these jobs. And, and in fact, it was recognized then that uh, these jobs should also be promoted broadly to Americans. Um, and but of course, there's always a need for a talent in high demand season. Um, One of the things about this area is that uh, they're closely monitored, and uh, site visits are conducted, and they're always updating the regulations. And I want to let you know that I would continue to uh, with those practices in a transparent way and would want to work with you on those. And I I understand, uh, you know, the summer work travel program has really uh, strong bipartisan support. And obviously, just even speaking uh, on the Hill here on my visits, um, you know, I, I just know how important that is, and um, I would be interested in, you know, continuing this dialogue. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Chairman.
1: Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for your service, your willingness to serve. We, we look forward to um, the chairman moving this on to the confirmation vote. The record on this hearing is going to remain open until the close of business this Friday. And seeing no objection, the hearing is adjourned.